This is The Jewish Executive Project, a podcast that interviews inspiring and accomplished leaders in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Join veteran international businessman Mike Aaron and performance and leadership coach Rabbi Jacob Rupp, the executive director of H Minnesota, as they discuss what it means to lead through the lens of Jewish values. Me great pleasure to introduce Kevin Musikanth, who is, just, I mean, we cover, I literally, I told him, this is all of leadership in about 40 minutes. He is the most successful Jewish rugby coach in the world and currently the coach of the Israeli rugby team. He is originally from South Africa, as you will uh, find out. He has a remarkable story. He is an avid martial artist as well and has been coaching for over uh, two decades. So we, we really cover the gamut. Again, you might not know rugby. I personally don't know that much about it, but I'm telling you, this applies to everything. We speak about failure. We speak about success inspiration, how to build a championship team. So no matter where you find yourself in life, this interview will be uh, hopefully very, very valuable to you. With no further ado, I give you our interview. Kevin, I tremendously appreciate you taking the time to, to join us, Mazel Tov, on your, your recent victory. Um, I wanted to ask, just to kind of kick off the, the equation, I think a lot of times rugby and uh, martial arts are both excellent physical expressions of basic principles of how to live a successful life. I'm curious, and I think that's always one of these, one of these uh, ideas that is, as a coach, you're, you're probably working with your players. How do you see like someone that understands like the deep ideas of rugby, how does that like set them up and how is that relevant for a, a successful life? Well, you see um, when it comes to, to rugby and martial arts, very, very similar scenario in fact it's funny you mentioned martial arts i spent when i was a lot younger in my early 20s i spent two years traveling with a world champion kickboxer uh, did the circuit with him as his, his conditioning coach so interestingly enough what it taught me was how you the sort of the value of of training your discipline as an individual but you still need your team even though you're inside that ring fighting on your own so it's just funny that you mentioned martial arts, but to answer your question uh, around rugby, rugby is a particularly uh, disciplined, value-based sport. So if you don't have it, you're not going to get to the top. There's no question about it. When you get onto the field on a Saturday, uh, sorry, not on a Saturday, on a Sunday, <laughs> or when you get onto the field um, and, you, and you have to play with your, with your team and you have to get off the ground and, and make those tackles and you saw the next day, and you've got to do it all again on the, on the following week. It's, you can't be ill-disciplined. You can't miss training. You can't uh, shirk. So completely value-based from, from top to toe. Um, absolutely. And it's a good correlation that you make as well. I'm, I'm curious about, about that piece because what is so difficult for so many high performance is oftentimes they'll let their physical conditioning go. They'll, they'll let their sleep go. Not, I'm saying for the people that are not, not sports performers now, you know, business people or, or, or coaches or anyone like that. So to what extent do you, when you're looking at a player who's underperforming, are you going to check about the fundamentals of, of, of that? Or is it like, once you get to the field, how important is setting up your, your personal physical schedule in order to unlock sort of what you're capable as emotionally or mentally? It's, a, it's that whole journey, uh, Rabbi. In the, in the end, the hardest thing you have to do as a coach 
I suppose it's the same in business and it's the same uh, being a rabbi. It's the same as anything. The hardest thing is to choose your team, you know, choose your players, choose your guys. And at the end of the day, as the coach, you go through a, a very stringent process where you have trials, you have camps, you have all these things. And it's, I find it quite fascinating, actually, when, when it comes to the crunch, you've picked your team, you've picked your players, and one of the players makes one mistake and coaches drop them the very next, the very next match, which to me is sort of, uh, it doesn't make sense because you've had all this time to evaluate, to pick a player, to, to, to choose a team, to go into a competition or to go into a season or whatever you're going to be doing in whatever context, and it's all relevant. And all of a sudden, there's a mistake and someone gets dropped. So to answer your question, you should be doing all these value-based, uh, all the ethical stuff right the way through your build-up and picking your team and your captain and your leaders and all the rest of it that goes with it. It's, it's the toughest thing should be choosing your team. And then you should really stick by them if you can, because dropping a player is, uh, or dropping someone from your team is, is a big thing. So you haven't obviously done your, all those, all those value-based exercises that you speak of. I have a question on that, and um, I also want you to tell your story, which a lot of our viewers wouldn't know your story. But before you ask you to tell your story, I have one question on what you just said. Would you say, you know, when you're in business and you build a team, the exact same concept, your employees, your executive team, your middle management team, your team, they make a mistake. It's very rare for you to drop them like that. But in sport, it's very common. Is that because you have a public that watch everything and comment on everything. And the coach feels that he's going to make instantaneous decisions because instead of being devoted to his team, he's devoted to the fans and the public. Would that be relevant? I think it's very relevant. I think there's a reason that most, uh, if you just look at, you're talking about making decisions under pressurized situations. And if you just look at most home games, taking a team concept, most home games, home teams have an advantage. Why? because of the peripheral, because of what's happening from spectator, crowd, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you're correct. It is. Um, but at the same time, it, it shouldn't be because of what we spoke about beforehand. In the end, you've spent, you've spent weeks and weeks and months even to be able to, first, you've got to go and recruit your guys. So you've got to go and get your guys to come and join your team. Then you've got to put them through trials. And you've usually got to cut them in half at some point. And then you've still got guys that are hanging in there. And during that process, you get to know them. You get to know what they stand for. You get to know how they deal with pressurized situations. Then you pick them. Especially, look, it's, it's different depending on what your goals are. But especially if you're trying to win a trophy. You know, if there are eight teams and eight coaches and there's one trophy, one team and one coach gets it. So you've got to pick your guys that are going to do the job for you. And there's no ways that a team that doesn't stand for something that's comprised of individuals that stand for something can get over the line and, and, and win a competition. There's no ways. So, yeah. Can, can you tell us your story? So why don't you start uh, just looking at you and having seen you before, you're clearly an athlete as well. From being an athlete, tell us your story from being a competitive athlete to then becoming a conditioning coach to then becoming a coach. And then in that story, in Broilington, you know, there's the concept that uh, in the academic world, there's those who can do and then those who teach. But you, a person who could do, and now you teach, 
Can, can you intertwine that in your story? It's a, Mike, it's a long one. It's 23 years worth of coaching. And then before that, you know, 20 odd years worth of playing. So, well, not 20, but 16, 17. But I actually became a coach by default. Um, you know, I used to get the goosebumps what, going to Newlands with my father and watching rugby. He was, he was my ultimate rugby mentor. Um, but at the end of the day, I got injured very young. So when I say very young, I try to hang in there. Uh, I had my first operation at 17, um, shoulder dislocation, shoulder reconstruction, then try to, you know, get back onto that field again as a schoolboy. I was at Weinberg Boys High School. Get back onto that field. Um, first match back, dislocate again, another operation. So I sort of struggled with that all the way until I got to about 23, where I was kind of playing and, you know, still in my mind, dreaming and wanting to be, you know, a professional player, Springbok rugby player, all those things that you grow up thinking when, you, when you're South African. But in the meantime, what I had done is I had started my own gym business where I was a personal trainer. And it sort of became my business to mentor and coach people. And what it did for me is because it was personal training and it was kind of like an industry where uh, business owners were coming to be trained by me. And here I was, this kid, 23 years old, having to, you know, put high-powered business people through their paces. And it taught me so much about what it means to take somebody and actually take them from a point and take them to another point. And obviously, I took that into my coaching. And from the age of 21, 22, I was playing coaching. Then officially, the very last game I played was actually the Maccabi Games final in Israel against America. And that was the last rugby match I played at the age of 23. And I we went won. back. Well, we won. South Africa won. <laughs> so we can, we can tease Sean about that, but South Africa won. Um, I think he may have been playing. Um, but be that as it may, when I came back to South Africa, I sort of made a decision that I'm not going to play anymore. You know? um, and I actually haven't. I mean, if you think about it, it's 20 years ago. I haven't uh, stepped foot back onto a rugby field as a player other than the odd little bit of passing or kicking or playing a bit of touch here and there, but never sort of, you know, I sort of closed that chapter. And then I really, even though there's a rugby player inside me, I really took that into my coaching and at all levels, Mike. So started right at the bottom, coaching under nines, under tens, uh, under 11s, right the way through. The first time I got a, a first team, we call it a first team, an A side, an under 19, you know, sort of a, a first rugby team. The first time I got that, was um, in back in 2009. And that was after, you know, a good solid 10, 11 years of coaching. So it was really, I think I was, I was frustrated because I wanted those opportunities. But I think if I look back, I was actually very lucky because while some guys finished playing rugby and their first job is um, coaching the Stormers or coaching a high level side, you know, this coaching False Bay, which was the first time I actually coached a, uh, an, an A side, a, a first team premier club. Um, I had already done 11 years and hundreds and hundreds of games. So all of a sudden, I could see these things. Um, and then obviously progressed. Uh, I'll, I'll try and just sharpen it up a bit. So progressed but, from well, false well, I, I know that you took a college to win the national championship. You took a yes. club to win the national championship. What was it? I mean, South African rugby coaches are world-renowned. What was it about you? And modesty aside, what would players say about you that differentiated you from the others? 
coach? I, I think you I think coaches tend to think that you've got to coach the person. Um, and I think because of my background, uh, which we'll get, which we, we can go into afterwards, but because of my background, I realized that as a 22-year-old or 23-year-old trying to coach 30-year-olds, you need to realize that you, number one, not as experienced as them on the field. Number two, you have to give them the, you have to go the extra mile to, let's say, win them over because it's all sales in the end, but you're selling a believable target. So it's not just fictitious sales. And then I think most importantly, Mike, um, the separation, you know, what would people say? Um, it's something that I often mention to teams. A coach coaches a player, um, but at the same time, you're a mentor to the person because without the person, there is no player. So if you're going to just coach the person, you will find that when that person runs onto the field, the player doesn't exist if the person doesn't exist. So you have to have that balance. You have to understand that you're a mentor and a friend to the person and you're a coach to the player. And there's Kevin, a can I just, I wanted to interrupt because you said something that was fascinating in the sense that you have to create believers out of people who can win. And now the average person assumes, you know, we're not, we're not playing to lose. So it sounds like in a lot of cases, people would play and have that expectation to win. How were you able, it sounds like that's not true. A lot of times people will come on the field and not have that belief. So how did you sell the belief? What, what were you selling? How are you helping people believe in themselves enough so that they could actually execute and get to where they wanted to go? I'll give you an example on that. It's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I think how does a, you know, how does a, how does certain songs sound better when certain singers are singing them and they're the same song? How does one coach say to a player, well done, and another coach says to a player, well done, and it means the world to one and means nothing to the other? I think it's a tough question to answer, but I'll, I'll give you a story. Um, I think when, when, when the dream is just so big, and you somehow get someone to listen to it, it's much more believable um, for some reason. I, I'll give an example. We had a guy, he's now playing for Spain. Um, he's a full international. Um, his name's Richard Stewart. And he had been at, this is the, the, the college that you speak about, UCT, University of Cape Town, and very high level rugby tournament on TV, on Supersport in South Africa, um, thousands and thousands of people watching it live and you know, in, being interviewed as a really, really mainstream competition and we I sort of got this team when they had won two games in two years I think out of desperation that gave me the job you know they wanted they wanted a change they wanted something different so in I went and the first thing I did is I, I went to the current team you know the current group of guys and I met them one by one and I sat with this guy and it's a student competition so you literally have to study to play in this competition and he already had two postgraduates very smart guy very intelligent guy that had spent two years playing for a club, only winning two games. And he said to me, look, you know, I, do you want me to study another postgraduate? It's my last year to be able to play. And I said, yes, I do. And uh, he said, why? I said, no, because we're going we're gonna to win the Varsity Cup. And like he laughed because it was actually quite a funny thing to say at the time. It was impossible, you know. And he said, but how can you say that? I said, well, it's actually for you. Um, and basically what I had done is I'd worked out that he would play. So long as we made the final, he would play his 50th match in the final. So I'm just illustrating how something so unbelievable becomes believable. So he would now, first of all, they haven't won any matches in two years. 
But now I'm explaining to him that the reason he needs to play is because he's going to be the first guy in history to run on, on his own in a final. Because if you're playing your 50th game for your club, you run, on, you run on, on your own. And I explained this to him. I said, but we have to make the final. And if we make the final, we'll win it. And ironically, we made the final. He ran out on his own at the, at the beginning. And it's just so unbelievable that it's believable, if that makes sense. You know, it's just such a, such a nice story to explain it. So it's, it's the kind of thing where oftentimes people want to get there, but they don't actually believe they can get there. And something else that I, that, I, that I hear you saying is that it's just as easy to buy into an impossible goal as it is to buy into a small goal. So you might as well actually expand out what you can accomplish. Why, why try to make a million dollars if you can make a billion, right? If you give that person the, the, the broad vision of what they can accomplish and you buy into that big dream, it's just as easy, again, it's just as easy to buy into a big dream as it is into a small dream. Is that sort of what you're saying? Precisely. And I think also, you know, especially in a team sport, when you, when you are coaching, uh, especially when you're the coach, a team wants to hear their coach say, we're going to win. We're going to win this competition. We're preparing to win the trophy, not let's finish mid table. You know, who, which team wants to hear their coach turn around and say, you know what, guys, I think it would be great if we come third last. Mm-hmm. You, want, you know, who, which team wants to hear that? So, even though we were supposed to come in this particular competition, even though we were supposed to come last or second last in terms of um, track record, it was just an impossible thing for, for me to even fathom, you know, in terms of how we prepare. Um, and interestingly enough, Rabbi, <laughs> our very first game, I said to them, we'd break records. And our very first game, we did break a record because we became the worst team <laughs> because we lost by the biggest, first game, biggest margin we lost by. And we ended up playing that team in the final and beating it. Wow. It's just amazing story. You know, it's just, a, it's it's okay, let, me, let, me, let me ask you two questions, the concept of winning. So in America now, everybody gets a trophy. You win for a good effort. You win for putting on a smile during the game because the concept is that no one can be a loser because that is against the touchy-feely concept. So as a coach, have you ever been in a situation where you're in a tournament or in the league and winning, you know, practically doesn't mean getting the trophy. Winning could be coming fourth in the league. In the league. That's a great achievement. And if, the, if you do have that situation, do you ever in the back of your mind know winning is fourth, but you still motivate for first? Can you tell us what happens then? And what is well, winning? Well, every, it's like anything. Every archer has to aim higher than the target. So you have to aim, but you are correct. You can't, uh, you can't win all the time. In fact, winning wouldn't mean anything if you won all the time. And I think that's the, the lesson that you have to teach your team. You have to explain to them that you can lose the first game and still win the tournament. Or you can lose the first three games and still make the Champions League because you have to finish in the top four and then win the Champions League. So... I think you've always, it's a hard one to say coming fourth is winning, but I think you've always got to set your sights on the next one. So, okay, we came fourth so we can build on something. Now we're going to win next year or we're going to win that next sort of thing that we're going to do. Um, But you are correct. And I think what you're referring to here is you're saying that in the end, you can't win every single match. And how do you turn coming second or losing 
into a victory. And I'll tell you uh, an interesting concept that uh, I introduced. How do you turn coming second into a victory? I love that. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you an interesting concept that um, actually it was, it was created out of fear. I created it out of fear because I thought to myself, we're selling this dream here. I've got all this team of coaches. We, we're winning this competition. But what happens if we lose a game? Because you know, everyone says we're going to be unbeaten. And then they lose the first game. They're not unbeaten anymore. And they think they've failed. But there's still a whole competition ahead of them. So what we created, and it actually was, I, I use it all the time now. And it was by fluke. But now I'm convinced. We created a theme-based uh, result for each game which means we were playing, it actually gives me goosebumps talking about it. We were playing for two things. So we were playing for the result, but we were also playing for what we stood for in that particular week. And if we won the match, but we didn't follow through on what we stood for, we actually counted it as a defeat. If we lost the match, but we honored our theme for the week, we counted it as a victory. So in the end, we found a way to win no matter what. And we were just a team of winners. So, so, so there's a couple of huge things that come out from that, which is a fascinating idea when it comes to leadership is on one hand, you want to set your goals high so that you can actually start to achieve them. But then even as you dial in, because you have that high goal, you have this understanding that even if I'm falling short of that goal, that's still a, a lot higher than I would have gotten had I not shot that high. Secondly, what you're saying is to start to redefine, and this is something that, that I think is absolutely crucial that I speak to with a lot of people is like your definitions of success, which means that technically, yeah, you can define success however you want. Like Mike was saying, like, you know, maybe just showing up as a success, but on the flip side, like find things that actually matter to you and define success that way. So if what, what our goals are, again, I'll work with teams and they might, you know, be making a ton of money, but they hate each other. So I'll like, can you guys sit down and have a, have a meeting where, where you guys just can leave the room having felt heard? And so that becomes a goal, even if we didn't address maybe one of the bigger pictures. So finding areas where you can win and to buy those little victories along the way. Is Absolutely. that what you're saying? Absolutely. And also another factor that comes in is to not as best as possible. It's really hard and it does come with experience. And we sometimes have to remind ourselves this, but to not blame anybody. You know, I, I can give numerous examples of matches that were lost through absolutely no fault of mine. <laughs> but you can never say that. You can never say that to a reporter. You can never say that to a team. You can never say that to your coaches. In the end, the team wins, the coach loses. The coach never wins. The coach coaches. And if you take that responsibility away from the team, it's hard. It's very difficult because you've got to, you know what's happened because you've lived it and nobody hurts like the coach when you lose. But at the same time, if you can take that pressure off the team, if the team understands, they just have to play. You have to win or lose. It's your, if you lose, it's your, it's your fault. It's my fault, guys. I'm sorry. I picked you. Therefore, I can't blame you. I gave the tactics. I made the subs. Therefore, I can't blame you. I picked the conditioning coach. I picked the assistant coaches. Therefore, I can't blame you. We went through the week plan. Therefore, I can't blame you. How do we get better? And I think so long as the team knows that you're going to stand there and take the blame, then uh, they feel a bit protected. It's like falling down. You'd much rather fall into a mattress than fall onto the hard ground.
So, so, so leadership is becoming the mattress for your team, ultimately, to give them the sense of, of, of stability that, again, that's a, that's a brilliant concept of, of this thing that we hear a lot about, about servant leadership, which is like, yeah, I might technically be in charge of this, but what that practically means is I just allow other people the safety to just go out there and do their job without feeling like they have to, it's not, it's not on them, it's on, it's on me. It's exactly. And I think it just depends on your personality. So if it doesn't suit your personality to carry that, um, let's call it warrior mentality to say, you know, I'm going to lead you guys. If we lose, it's me. If it doesn't suit your personality, it's not, it's not a cut and paste. It has to fit. It's a tough thing to, to say, because often people will listen and go, that's a great concept. Let me try it. And they just fail dismally because it really doesn't suit their personality. But if it matches, and if you take responsibility... We, we interviewed a guy, what you just, I'm going to interrupt for a second. He said, the only thing that sounds true is the truth. Nothing else sounds true. Only the yeah. truth, the, the authentic. Yeah. So, you know, that, and I think authentic. I think, I think that is, you know, one day when I hang up that coaching whistle, I think if my players over the 50, 60 years please God that I'm going to coach for, turn around and say he was authentic. You just said a word there. That would mean much, much more than anything else. He was real. He, he put his heart in the middle and we went with it for that season. Because in the end, it's actually funny. Very seldom does the same circle in rugby context stand together week in, week out. Often, it's the very last time that that circle is going to play. So you've really got to embrace... Um, that sort of moments. It's the moment. It's like you, you've got to have a thick skin, but a thin skin. You've got to show your heart, but at the same time, hold it close. It's, it's a very, um, yeah. I, mean, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to ask also something that you, 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 you mentioned. One of the things that so many leaders and teams deal with is this idea of a fear of failure, which is that, you know, we set up, we, 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 we set up these goals and then we so closely link our ego to the outcome that it's almost scary to execute. Because if I don't make it across the, the, the goal line, so to speak, or if I don't make what I set out for, I'm a failure, I don't wanna try, I fall apart. So how do you mitigate that fear of failure either as, as a coach or as a, as, a, as, a, as a player? I think you have to stimulate success and failure right from the beginning when it doesn't count. So basically, the only time it counts is in the final. But it does and doesn't count right at the beginning. So if you've, got a guy, if you've got a team for two months before your first, and most of the time that should be the case, you should never really walk into a team and have a match that week. It, it doesn't kind of work that way. Um, and obviously, if you're involved in school and lower-level rugby, there are different sets of principles and values that you should be teaching and coaching. But I'm, I'm talking now at, at sort of the high, uh, higher level. Um, when you arrive there and you're trying to stimulate success and failure, so often what happens is a coach doesn't realize that when he's coaching, so he'll send out his structure, then he'll get his, his team to start playing plays, okay? They'll get it wrong. He'll keep them there past the time that he, the time that he said they would finish practice all the way until they get it right once, even though they failed 10 times. Now, is he doing that for the team or is he doing that for himself? So he's coaching for himself so he can go home, feel better about himself. But what he doesn't realize is he's sending 
his whole team with a different set of personal circumstances. Someone might have been proposing to their fiance. You don't even know what's going on in terms of the time frame. They lose a bit of trust. He goes home feeling good because his plan worked. His team home, goes home frustrated with him. Now, if they fail and they feel what that failure was like, then all of a sudden they've lost something that doesn't really count. So you stimulate that success and failure all the time. You make it a competition. When you go into the gym, you don't just do a workout. Someone wins, someone loses. When you go onto the field and you're doing drills, someone wins, someone loses. There's a leaderboard. People know what it's like to win. People know what it's like to lose. And all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter. So long as they play and they play their best. And if their best is good enough, they should win. So, so, I, I, so just, to, just to reiterate, just because Mike and I both work in, in working with the, in, in the business world, that if a person is afraid to fail, what that probably means is they haven't gone out and tried enough. And Correct. let them fail on smaller things, go out and pitch deals that don't end up going and do that enough and get past that. Because then when it really comes time, you'll be, you'll be good to go. You'll, you're just used to it. It's just like anything else. Second nature. It's, you know, those, I don't know where, where we stand on the 10,000 hours. But in your first hour, you're not going to land, the, no matter what your potential is. In your first hour, you're not going to land the world's biggest deal. And if you do, then it, it, the deal is not the world's biggest deal. There was more out there for you. You, you have to fail. You have to start with the little ones. It's absolutely. We have, a, we have family principles, five family principles. One of them is, is that we run our own race. And our own race means that no one else dictates failure and success. So my sons would always laugh. They'd come in from the game and they'd say, yeah, we won or we lost. And I'd say, and? And they'd say, I played well or I didn't play well. Played well means I played to the best of my ability and I was an asset to the team. Because they know that the, the score of won and lost in the team is only a small part of the equation. The equation is did you run your own race? And it's the same with wealth accumulation, with business accumulation. Too many people get so focused on adding to what used to be their goal, they never achieve satisfaction. But if you don't let other people define your goal, if you know what your race is, guess what? You get to know when you're winning. But I think in today's world, people have forgotten about that. At the end of the day, you define your race. Not, not social media, not Facebook, not Instagram. You define your race. Spot on. Kev, tell us about the journey. You go from South African coaching hero, and then you go to Israel, the toughest of all environments to do business and everything else because everybody else is so good at it. And you yeah. become the national coach there. And tell us a little bit about how that happened and what your dream is for rugby in Israel. So uh, it's, it's so, so strange. Uh, I must be honest. You know, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew, um, but I was always the only one everywhere I was. You know, uh, I didn't go to a Jewish school. I went to Weinberg Boys High School, which is, you know, I think 1,100 boys. Um, you know, there were, I think there were two of us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was always sort of the, the, the one that was different and very proud of that. Um, having said that, I never experienced anything untoward in that regard and actually welcomed everyone and every, anybody and everybody into my little world of, uh, Musenberg Shul and Musenberg Synagogue and singing in the choir, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think the reason I say that is because it's so ironic where I am now because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Israel. 
coaching um, rugby as one of many Jews. Everybody is Jewish, although you know that's not a prerequisite for the for the team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the reality is, Jewish country. That's where I am. But the one thing that they really desperately needed um, is somebody that's walked a road that hasn't necessarily been, and I don't want to use the word sheltered because being a Yid is far from being sheltered 100%. But what was necessary was someone that's walked a particular road where actually we have to be able to play rugby in a situation where maybe it's tough for us. No game for Israel is an easy game. Every game is tough. And with our goals and our aspirations for the next five, six years, every game is going to be like, climbing Mount Everest because we have significant goals that we want to get to. So how did I land up there? Very simple. Um, as you know, uh, uh, I played Maccabi um, and I, I love the competition, but it sort of moved to the back of my mind. And when I moved to Johannesburg to take up a directorship at St. John's College, obviously the Jewish community in Joburg is, is large. And as soon as I got there, they saw, started welcoming me into the community as, as the community does, made me sort of a home away from home kind of thing, away from my family, etc. Um, and slowly but surely, this Maccabi Games thing came up as uh, would you would you coach the South African Maccabi side? And initially, you know, it wasn't something that I, I really thought was something I wanted to do. But slowly but surely, uh, I thought about it, I processed it, and I thought, you know what, what an what an amazing opportunity. Um, South Africa hadn't done so well over the, I think, three Maccabi games is they, they managed to win a medal or, or, or anything like that. So I thought, let me take this as a challenge. Um, and when I was there, uh, uh, we played against Israel in the semifinal of the 15th, and we beat them quite well. And they basically noticed that, and they couldn't believe that I was a Jewish guy. They, I had to tell them a, quite, quite a few times, actually, <laughs> and slowly but surely, the, that relationship grew. So how I landed up there, actually, I was um, director of rugby at St. John's, which is an Anglican school, um, and landed up going to Maccabi with two players from St. John's that had Jewish parents. Not Jewish really? parents. Yeah. Wow. In my day, um, I didn't have any Jewish kids. And, and it's just ironic. Sometimes it's like if you look back at Boston Cup, and I'm jumping around, but sometimes you actually can't control where destiny is going to take you. And you have to believe in that because if you don't believe in that, you're always kind of unsettled in where you should. So I feel destiny brought uh, my situation to Israel. And now, obviously, I know, I know from a sporting concept, nothing lasts forever. I know I'm not going to be the coach forever. I know I'm not going to be the technical director forever. I know I'm renting space in that department. Of course, I'll always be a yet forever and I'll always have that, but I'm not going to be there forever, but, but I'm there for a reason. Like we, we having this conversation for a reason and I really believe those things. And that sort of keeps, gives me the hope um, to continue because sometimes it does get dark and lonely and all of those things, you know, sort of thinking back and, wow, the Varsity Cup, it's on TV and, you know, missing that. And, you know, here you are sort of, in some instances, showing young kids what a rugby ball looks like. And then when you really think about it, actually, that, that's quite a beautiful thing to do. So, yeah. 
I love your thought about destiny. You know, often people say to me, my life hasn't turned out the way it is because the opportunities never came my way. And I'm like, I think you never had your eyes and ears open when those opportunities did come your way because <laughs> the opportunities tend to come everybody's way. You define it as destiny. It's the same, the same concept. If you keep your eyes and ears open. There's a but, destiny. Let me grab it, own it, and see how long it lasts. But only if you believe in it. And that's I, I, the thing. You know, I, I wanted to point that piece out also, like you were saying, is that is that having the perspective to realize that you're getting always set up for the next place, as frustrating as it might be, or whatever it might be, you might be the one that introduces the next big rugby spar. You would be that you would be that first guy that showed him what the rugby ball looked like. So understanding that or that, that you didn't get frustrated that you started your career teaching kids because it was preparing you how to how to coach when you're when you're coaching at a professional level so i think that perspective of i'm going in the right direction it's i, I had that call with someone today who felt like everything was just falling apart and i said what if you saw that like this was sort of like the the foundation the soil for what you were going to grow towards and he was like oh, i never thought about it that way but that's such a fundamental like mindset shift especially as we deal with, again, there's so much turmoil in the world and so many people are so, um, pre, I guess, like are looking at it from such a negative way. And when is this bad thing going to pass? And they haven't made that switch to say, well, what can I do now? Or what are the opportunities in front of me now that I can take advantage of to position myself to be one of the, the, the leaders when we come out of this? Yeah, yeah, I, I really, that resonates with me. Um, it makes me think of, I'm not sure who made this quote, but I've used it quite often, especially at the beginning of a season. But it, it's like to be the best in the world, for someone to be the best in the world at something, there's only that one spot. And it's quite, if you think about it, it's quite an arrogant thing to think. Because first of all, you don't get to be the best in the world if you don't think you're going to be the best in the world. So now all of a sudden, there's a level of arrogance that is attached to that. But the one thing that is definitely part of that process is if you want to be the best in the world, you have to be arrogant enough to believe that you're the best in the world, but humble enough to work at it every single day of your life, because otherwise you won't get there. Love so it's that. that ambiguous, that, that, you know, sort of join it together and it's perfect. And that's the truth. The truth is nobody wakes up and is the best in the world. They have to work really hard, but they also have to believe that they're going to be the best in the world. So that kid that's being... You don't know who the next Springbok is, who the next All Black is. You don't know what you happen to be coaching. You could be coaching the next best fly-off in the world, but you need to treat the guy that's never even going to make an A-team as if he's the best fly-off in the world because he might just be. So it's, it's that kind of thing to take into that keeps you sort of um, sane, but also keeps you dreaming all the time. I just, you know, there's, there's lots of articles about Steve Nash, you know, the national basketball player who happens to be half South African, half Canadian. And consistently you'll see all the greats. I've always said the one thing about Steve Nash, he didn't have the natural talent, except for one natural talent he had was to never stop working. And uh, Kobe Bryant used to say when he left the uh, gymnasium and everybody was exhausted, Nash was still out there working, working. I, I wanted to just shift slightly just in terms of, of uh, identity and, 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 and Judaism. I think that there's a, 
I'm, I'm, I happen to be a very, I, I like to think of myself as a Talmud of a, of a certain Rabbi Cook, Rav Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of Israel. And one of his big, he, he was such a visionary because back in the day, there was either the people that were working the land or sitting and studying. And the idea of a, of a Jew who's both spiritually connected and a, a, a physical competitive specimen that could compete at world at, at, at the highest level, like that was something he saw that no one else saw. And I think that there's a certain idea that you also embody in terms of how you view sport, how you view the physical body, how you view spirituality, where ultimately you're trying to, to combine all of these different things to sort of create your ideal. Maybe speak a little bit to that as someone that is both spiritually sensitive, leadership oriented, and then also very much rooted in, in, in the not the perfection of the physical body, but, but in bringing excellence out of our physical form. So I think yeah, there, there's lots there. Um, I think there are lots of things we can look back in life and say, we change this, we change that, we change this. Um, but if there's something that you would never change, uh, that's generally the thing that is your core, your, your value, your value system. Um, and that's the way I look at Judaism for me. It's, it's the one thing that even though in at times it was tough, it's tough um, going to school with matzah when no one else is going to school with matzah. You see, I didn't have that situation where everyone around me was eating matzah and I didn't understand at the time. Now I understand, but I didn't understand what all these things were. So because I've sort of followed that pathway, I'm, I'm, I'm modern in my thinking. I don't know what modern means and what it doesn't mean. Because at the end of the day, uh, a yid is a yid, you know, in, in the way I look at it, it's, 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 what, it's what we are. But, but the point I'm trying to make is because it was such a different thing for everybody around me, it's such a precious thing to me and always will remain. And it's not something I'm speaking in this, in this forum I'm speaking about it, but it's not something I speak about or it's, it's just something that I'm exceptionally principled in and by no means and, and it's just it's an internal thing it's by no means um i'm you know how, how do i say it I, I'm, a, I'm a rugby coach we play matches on saturday i mean i can't profess to be i'm not shomre all of those things but but i'm a yid and it's the one thing i would never ever change and the thing i'm proudest of so that value and it's not it's not whether it's judaism christianity or anything like that it's got nothing to do with what it is it's just if you are able to be proud about your core and who you are, so long as you can stimulate that in others and respect others for, for what they are and what they stand for, you can generate teams and sports people. And, you know, you, you say specimens, you call it the specimen, but the specimen can't be a specimen if there's nothing inside there. He just looks like a specimen, but there's nothing inside. So there has to be something inside. It doesn't have to be a particular thing because then it becomes a judgmental thing. It's got to be a welcoming thing, a respect thing. But if that's the way you feel about how you've been brought up and what you stand for, and you can instill that in somebody else in their, in their context, you've got a serious specimen, you know? Unbelievable. That, that was like such a great, I don't even know. I, I, think, I, think, you, I think you nailed it. Mike, do you have any final questions for Kevin? I mean, just personally, on, 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 I, I, 
I feel like there's so much more to go into, but I feel like pretty much you encapsulated in about 40 minutes, all of leadership principle. That was very impressive. Do you have any final questions, Mike? Yeah, I'd like one question. If you had a whole bunch of talented, recently graduated college students at 24 years old, recently graduated, the world's jobs are hard to find, they can't travel to look for opportunities, they know they're talented, they've worked hard for something, they got the prize, and now the path in front of them is completely murky. There's no clear road. What would you say? They'd say, Kevin, give us two minutes of wisdom. Get us, yeah, what would you say to them? Grow, growing up in Musenberg, uh, which is a coastal town in, in Cape Town, um, the waves weren't very big, but you had to paddle very, very long and far, especially as a kid, to get right to the back so you could surf the best waves. So my message to them would be everything passes. And there's many, many examples. You'll have a hundred, I'll have a hundred, Rabbi will have a hundred, and, and they'll have a hundred themselves. Everything passes. They could have had their appendix taken out. It seemed like the end of the world when it happened, but it happened and it passed and they were okay. The same way this will also pass. But the murkier the water, the better the waves are. And you've just got to keep paddling because you're not going to get to the back if you stop. So that's what I would tell them. That's beautiful, Kevin. I love it. Kevin, how do people find out more about you, about the team, everything like that? They can follow Rugby Israel on Facebook. Um, they can catch me on Facebook as well if they want to reach out. I have no problem, uh, absolutely no problem communicating with anyone who wants to ask a question or anything like that. Actually, it would be a great pleasure. Um, and of course, on Instagram as well, Kevin Music Camp, you can just search it and you'll find it there. Outstanding. From the, bottom, from the bottom of our hearts, this was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very Thanks, much. for guys. Really fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. For more information or how to reach us, please follow us on social and reach out to jrupp at aish.edu.